This is an American Lyceum debate. It's time to change. I want to bring that change to the American people. Now whose fault is that? Not the Democrats, not the Republicans. And that's why we've got to fight for it. I can't help it. There you go again. I am paying for this microphone. Welcome to the Lyceum Podcast. I'm Tim Kaine, co-founder of theamericanlyceum.org, a nonprofit think tank that is rebuilding civil society through innovative research and hosting solution-focused debates. Today's Lyceum debate answers the question, what economic reforms can save U.S. democracy? We have three participants who will each speak with a three-minute opening statement, followed up by two minutes of questions from the other participants and a two-minute closing statement. The first participant is Bob Lighton. He's the co-founder of the American Lyceum and author of multiple books, including Trillion Dollar Economists and Good Capitalism, Bad Capitalism. The second participant is Allison Schrager, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, also a PhD economist and author of the recent An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. And then lastly, myself, Tim Kane, author of the recent The Immigrant Superpower and co-founder of the American Lyceum. Let's talk, listen, and learn together. We'll start with Bob Lighton. So democracy's in trouble, and we're here to debate whether there are any ideas from the three that each of us are going to present that can help save democracy. And what do we mean by democracy being in trouble? It means that there is a loss of faith by a significant share of the electorate in the rule of law. It's reflected in a loss of faith in the Supreme Court. There's a loss of faith in voting systems, which determine essentially how we are governed by majority rule. And there's a disturbing fraction of our population that's, at least according to public opinion polls, willing to resort to violence rather than democratic means. These are problems that cannot be addressed, in my view, by economic reforms directly. However, indirectly, if we can find ways to get people, more people, to believe in the, what I call the overall system and the system being measured in terms of the economic benefits that people widely receive, if more people have a faith in the system, they're indirectly more likely to have faith in, in democracy without addressing each of these things that I addressed. So what are these three ideas? One is wage insurance. Two is lifetime training accounts and three are baby bonds. Let's take wage insurance. One of the things we've seen over the last several decades is that when people lose their jobs, they suffer a loss in income when they have to take a new job. Wage insurance would have the government pick up a share of that loss so that people would not feel they're losing so much if they have to take a new job. So by addressing anxiety and fear, that's one way to give people more confidence in the system. Second, if you're going to prosper in the next century, whatever age you are, you're going to have to constantly upgrade your skills. President Clinton famously called this, you earn what you learn. The government can help with this by giving people access to what I call lifetime training accounts. Training accounts will allow you to borrow with a requirement that you pay back as a percentage of your income only if your income crosses a certain threshold. So this will give you incentives and the financial ability to constantly upgrade your skills and essentially be part of the winner's circle and feel like you're benefiting of the American dream. Finally, we're all subject to what I call the birth lottery. Who you're born to and where you're born make a big difference in how successful you're going to be in your life. 
And there are a lot of people that are born in the wrong zip code or they're born to parents that are low income. One way we can help rectify some of the inequalities is giving people what are called baby bonds, an idea that's been suggested by Senator Booker and others, where you would get $1,000 once you're born and then have that amount added to over time if your parents are low income. So that by the time you're 18, you could have as much as $50,000 and have a stake in the American dream. So with more people having that stake, I think more people will have a faith in the democratic process that produces the results for the policies that I've just identified. Bob, I like your presentation. Here's the problem. And you know this coming from me. I'm a relatively conservative economist. I worry about how much things cost. Each of your three ideas seem to be a cost, a cost, a cost. How do we pay for it? And which one's the least expensive? Maybe I'll go with that one. Wage insurance is the least expensive. And I've done some round numbers about how much they would cost collectively. We're talking about 50 to $100 billion a year which I would uh, assess against higher income individuals, because if the threat to democracy is as real as I say, then even higher income people will realize they're at risk just as much as everyone else. But we can't ask lower income people to pay it because they don't have it. Are there any restrictions on how the baby bonds get used? Are 18 year olds allowed to just spend them as they want? That's an excellent question. If it were up to me, I would put restrictions. I would say that uh, when you're 18, you can only access the money for educational purposes or perhaps a health emergency. If you're maybe at a later stage in life, if you don't if you don't access it immediately, then maybe at a certain age, you could use it to uh, help support the purchase of a first house. But I I know exactly what you're worried about. We don't want people at 18, um, especially that um, if they failed, let's say, going through school, they could turn around and blow it. And we don't want that to happen. So I agree with Bob in a lot of the same spirit, and some of my ideas are actually quite similar. See, I think what's wrong with the system, I'm a little more hopeful can be reformed, is people don't have faith in our democratic institutions anymore because they don't really feel like they have a shot at success. And what really made people come from all over the world to really feel like they could have a shot at success in this country was a feeling that they were empowered to take risks. Especially, you know, immigrants are natural risk takers. They were able to come here. There are policies that were very supportive of risk taking. And our institutions, when people had faith in them, grew to support risk taking, whether it was bankruptcy rules or the Homestead Act and all of those things. So I think what we really need to do is support a culture of risk taking again. Because a lot of policies we've had have been trying to take away risk from people. And we're actually seeing, anyway, there's this perception that we're living in this high risk world. People have never been taking fewer risks, fewer job changes, fewer moves. And in fact, even wage variability, surprisingly, has been going down for everyone but the top 5%. So I would change certain rules or policies so that people can feel more empowered to take risk. And that would include, one, reforming healthcare so it's less tied to employers. Two, I would also do wage insurance, but a little differently than Bob. I would call it more instead of permanent wage shocks, transitory wage shocks. So people can take uh, more variable income jobs and three reforming licensing rules or maybe perhaps federalizing them so people can be more free to move across state boundaries and start businesses. So when I say reform healthcare, I mean, ideally, we would separate the employer tax deduction and that would change the market. That might not be realistic. So as a way to start that. I would allow platforms like Uber, Lyft, TaskRabbit to be able to offer wage insurance to their contractors and be given a safe harbor. So that doesn't necessarily mean they could be sued to be employers. That way, people can have multiple jobs, 
maybe work on a platform and have a means to get health insurance. Another thing I would do is transitory wage insurance, which is if you maybe you're working for yourself, your income might not be as stable. And that might put a lot of people off from, uh, especially if they have families and a lot of expenses. So what they could do is pool together. And if they have an income shock, maybe even like a health event that prevents them from working for a little bit, means they could pool together and smooth out those wage shocks. Obviously, there'd have to be restrictions to um, stop moral hazard and adverse selection, all those other things in insurance, but I think it could be done. And then finally, there's a lot of reasons why people aren't able to move as much as they should. You know, a lot of it is zoning that makes housing more expensive. That would be another thing if I could add a fourth. But also that if you want to say start, you know, a haircutting business and you're living in one state and you want to move to another, you might have to get retrained. So we should standardize or at least or maybe even protect federalized licensing so people can be more empowered to move and everyone can be take more risks. So, Allison, I'm going to ask you a question I should have asked myself, which is, how do you see the politics evolving to generate the kind of public support for the ideas that both you and I have addressed, which are, are somewhat compatible with each other? Well, I think the way we have to do this is emphasize that these are actually very progressive policies. I, I send the best motives to both sides. And I think we often don't see that. And so, you know, we look at Republican solutions that are more about ownership and individual responsibility. I think they're being heartless about the poor. But I think we need to be clear is that we're actually giving sort of low income people also a shot, but also giving them protections. And I think a lot of our solutions were very similar in that way. I was actually largely inspired by your wage insurance idea to think about how we use that idea creatively for other areas of risk in the economy. So, Allison, my question for you is, is this idea of federalizing. That's one of my favorite words because I'm a federalist and I think mm -hmm. states need to be independent. The Tenth Amendment still matters. How does this not get abused to, to where 20 years in the future, there's somebody at the Labor Department that says, in every state, every plumber has to take our 5,000 word exam and pay a bunch of, you know, how do we stop that? Well, I mean, we also already have abuse at the state level. In fact, even more so because you have less eyes on these things. In fact, if one, someone passes a terrible like licensing law in North Dakota, I mean, who's going to notice? But you do it on a federal level. In some ways, it actually improves accountability. So, yeah, we all agree when you see the Capitol assaulted, not just in Washington, D.C., but in various states uh, have seen their capitals assaulted going back four or five years. The violence is out of control. I do think economic issues are at the heart of what's happening with the breakdown in American democracy. So we can fix it. We economists can fix this problem. Now, the number one issue that I've sensed, I, I grew up relatively poor. I've done well since then. But um, you know, raising four kids, trying to teach them work ethic, I think there's an erosion in the work ethic that bothers me. But I think a lot of these things come back to the tax code. And that's where I would start. Because everyone I talk to in my old neighborhood they don't think they're getting a fair deal. They think somebody else is, you know, like the, the rich are getting their deductions and these lazy people don't pay any tax at all. Everybody, no matter where they are on the, on the income spectrum, feels like somehow they're getting a worse deal. And the problem is, you know, reform number one is go to a flat tax. Have all Americans pay the same rate. That equalizes us. So we're all paying 23% or 34%. I'd like to say, I don't care what the rate is, but I do. Nonetheless, we would all be in it together. And right now we're not. So that's a problem. We got to go to a flat tax to make sure everybody feels like they're paying the same rate. 
And Bob, I know you're going to ask hard questions. There's ways to do this where you still have, you know, you have a threshold where above that, you know, people, people wouldn't have to pay. Below that, they wouldn't pay. Let me move on, though, to uh, issue number two. We need to have Americans believe in the American dream again. And you know who really believes this is a great country and they want to be here? Immigrants. These people tend to start more companies. They have a higher workforce participation rate. And you, if you ask them what's the best country in the world, a larger portion of foreign-born American citizens are patriotic. They believe in the Constitution, the First Amendment, this idea of capitalism and equality. We need more immigration. That's our lifeblood. And I think if we're, we're losing it right now, so that one's a slam dunk. Issue number three, and it's a hobby horse of mine, so you guys have to forgive me, it's a balanced budget amendment. When I think about democracy dying, it's not just populism, right? There's populism on the right and left. It's bigger and bigger and bigger government. And the populists think, well, gee, if only, you know, the president could take all power and fix problems for us. And he's got the a federal government that's got, what, 20% of the, of the budget or 30? I mean, with tax rates now for the highest income people hitting 40%, I worry about the Leviathan. And we get the Leviathan under control by limiting in some way how big it can get. You only do that, guys, with the balanced budget amendment. You know, the pay-go systems and all that, it's nuts. And you know, I've written a book about this with Glenn Hubbard balance, so we can get into the details. But those are my three issues. That will save democracy. Okay, this is maybe unfair then, given what you just told me. But how would you reform immigration? I understand more, but who more? More refugees, more <laughs> sort of high-skilled workers, or would we do just open up what we're already doing and do more family reunification? I would go back to what George W. Bush did in 1990, the last major significant reform. George Bush doubled legal immigration. That's what you mm -hmm. do. You want more green cards. You want these people to go through the assimilation system. And you're right. It's sort of an all of the above, not illegal immigration, legal. So you, you do want more refugees. We, we bring a, a tiny amount of refugees. I think it's in the tens of thousands right now. That's ridiculous. These are some of the most patriotic people. But yeah, family reunification, ramp up the numbers. Um, work visa type uh, immigration, ramp up those numbers. But legal immigration only and all of the above. So I'll follow on with immigration, although you've given us food for thought on, on three fronts. A lot of the people that have lost faith in democracy are people who are opposed to immigration. They think they're, that we're losing our country. I mean, that was, you know, largely, that largely explains the rise of Trump. So how do you overcome that problem? I mean, by the way, I am for you, just to be clear, on, as a policy matter for immigration, but how does that fix democracy? Good question, Bob. I think anybody that has spoken to an immigrant, it's just a matter of exposure. You can feel the love of this country come out of them. They made an, a positive choice to be here. But you're right. It, it, when I look back at the four periods of immigration in, in U.S. history, and you know, this comes from my, my latest book, uh, The Immigrant Superpower. I feel like I'm on the Tim Kaine book show here. But um, there was only one period where Americans turned against it. And it was in 1921, 1924, after a global pandemic. So I really worry about that. There's always been that undercurrent of people fearing that immigrants steal jobs, which the three of us know they don't. Why do I think this would save democracy to increase it? Because, Bob, I actually disagree with your premise. We're not like 1921. The opinion polling I've done and that Gallup's done has seen a rapid increase in the people that think more immigration is OK. That's true of Democrats. It's true of Republicans. 
It's true of independence. The fringes have gotten control of the political process, but the people themselves know that legal immigration is really good. So I think this has a really high prospect of passing and saving us. So as economists here, we all share the same kind of training. And uh, we have similar views, at least on economic matters, but not in all respects. So, for example, I'm not sure a balanced budget amendment um, is a good idea. I think it would constrain government at a time um, during recessions when I think we would benefit from having stimulus. On the issue of having a flat tax, I understand, Tim, your argument. There's an argument about fairness. And what we've all, I think, all agreed on is that people are not going to have more faith in democracy unless they all feel like the system is fair and gives everybody a shot at realizing realizing the benefits of all their talents. And your point about the tax system is that people do not think the system is fair. And that's certainly true. It's been true for probably 30 or 40 years. So it is possible, I will grant you, to design a tax system with a very large exemption where if everybody knew that Warren Buffett and Bill Gates were, you know, was paying 15 or 20 percent, they may feel better than they do now when they know that, you know, let's say Bezos or, or some other rich people aren't paying anything. So I will grant you that it's possible. But when we get to the other subjects that, for example, that Alice and I have talked about, which are to basically enhance risk taking and also uh, make fe- people feel better about taking risks, which is something that I think the proposals that Alice and I talked about share. I personally think those are more likely to lead to a greater faith in the system being shared by more people, which was really the game here. There's so many people who have lost faith and there's so many people that we have to basically get back in the so-called winner circle. And I think the kind of proposals that, that Allison and I talked about are more likely to attract more people to get us to where we want to go. I think I, I I pretty much agree with both of you. I mean, I I think Bob and I are both of our ideas are broadly about taking more risk, and I also like Tim's calls for more transparency because I think opaqueness is part a big reason why people are distrustful. But I do think maybe everyone else is wrong because one thing that really does trouble me is that in the last couple of decades, I think there's been a big big push to remove risk from our economy, particularly the most vulnerable. And I really understand that instinct. I mean, in a lot of ways, the, the economy in the world feels a lot more precarious. But I think in a lot of ways, that's just entrenching the worst parts and creating more distrust. Because I don't think people really appreciate how important risk-taking is to well-being. Risk is one of the primary principles of what drives motivation. I think even as an economist, we don't think enough about motivation. We just assume more money, more motivation. But sort of having a resolution of uncertainty is one of the biggest drivers of motivation. It also allows people to feel like they've fully reached their potential. If we just say to populations, hey, you know what? Risk is okay for Jeff Bezos. It's okay for Mark Zuckerberg. But, you know, you just need to be taken care of by the government. That's just like what promise or potential do people have? No wonder we can give them all the money in the world. They're never going to really feel like they are part of society and have the same shot the rest of us do. So I think making people feel like the economy is more inclusive is ironically letting them take risks and fail. Granted, I said, I understand. I don't want to be heartless about it. I want people to feel like they are empowered to take risks by having an adequate safety net. But I think we have to think a little bit more creatively about what that means and really sort of thinking about the role insurance plays in people's lives and having that 
really feel them be more empowered to take risks, to take risks they feel good about. And if they don't work out, to feel like there's someone there to catch them. In closing, I want to say, I think Allison's right, but I want to appeal to the people when they think about these nine ideas we're putting in front of them, the way to get risk rebalanced and the way to reward risk more and make people feel like they have more stake in their life outcomes, not some big government's going to take care of them, is to, to limit the size of government. So I like that value. I just think they, they trace back to more immigration leads to bringing in more people that are, they're accepting risk. They're entrepreneurial by their very nature and coming here. That one, I think we all agree on. So that, that I feel like is maybe the strongest idea. And you guys know I came up with it at the last minute when we were preparing. But the second idea, I think you're right about uh, the healthcare taxes. The way those are treated now are very perverse, create huge incentives. But the flat tax is the overarching way to get real reform and to see which deductions we need to get rid of and simplify the tax code. It's something we're all hungry for. And it, and it comes back to that risk profile. As much as I like some of the ideas you guys have talked about, the wage insurance in particular, I disagree. I think we need to just spend less. And so I don't want new programs. We're already, I think it's a steady state trillion dollar deficit every year. So something's going to have to give, and it's probably not a good time as we're heading into a recession and a hyperinflationary environment. Fed's going to have to raise interest rates. Suddenly, the Congress is going to have to pay for stuff instead of just asking the Fed to print more money, which is essentially what's happening. So we're going to have to do less. And I just don't think anything where there's more spending is going to work. I love the idea of putting some brakes on licensing. I just don't think a bigger federal enforcement agency is, is the right way to go. But I've learned a lot and I am confident we economists can save the country. Thank you. The Lyceum Podcast was made possible thanks to the support of the J.P. Conti Family Foundation. I'm Tim Kane, and the producer is Ali Giyu. If you like this, try our other podcast, Why America, where I talk with immigrants and scholars about how immigration put the power in superpower. Look for more good content and listen to future episodes at www.theamericanlyceum.org. Thanks so much for listening, and keep fighting the good fight. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.